Welcome to Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States Intelligence Community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later, she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. This episode, we are joined by Jacqueline Tame. Jacqueline is the Vice President of Innovation at Landis, a forward-leaning agricultural co-op headquartered in Ames, Iowa. Prior to joining Landis, Jacqueline was the Acting Deputy Director and Chief Performance Officer of DOD's Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. She also served as a Senior Advisor to the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, Senior Staffer on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, Chief of Customer Engagement at the Defense Intelligence Agency, Advisor to the Chief of Naval Operations, and Policy Advisor to the Deputy Director of National Intelligence. Jacqueline holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in French with a minor in classical vocal performance and a Master of Public Affairs degree from the University of Texas at Austin, as well as a Master's in National Security and Strategic Studies from the U.S. Naval War College's College of Naval Warfare. She is passionate about growing and promoting women leaders, having founded Command After Next, a small group dedicated to the mentorship, professional development, education, and championship of women in national security. A hot yoga enthusiast who legitimately can be found reading policy and congressional research service reports at night before bed. Jacqueline lives with her husband, Jonathan, and a rescue pup, Dax, in Southern California. Jacqueline, we are so excited to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Megan. It is such an honor to be here, truly. It's an honor to have you. So to kick us off, we would love for you to share with us a bit about your background and upbringing. How did you find your way into the intelligence community? Sure. So I think kind of um, like everything about me and my story, non-traditionally would be my sort of first answer. Um, I grew up in Austin, Texas. I am the product of two academic parents, so kind of a university kid, uh, as it were, uh, very liberal arts focused. You know, we didn't have, you know, a ton growing up, but the two things that my family always invested in were education and travel. So my sister and I were very, very fortunate to kind of have those as foundations. Um, and those have really stuck, I think, with us and, and certainly with me in terms of how I look at my professional trajectory. Um, one of the sort of really amazing dual benefits of that education and travel focus was that my mom is an art historian and she focused on, on French 19th century art. And so we were able to live abroad several times when I was growing up. We lived in France. That really kind of set the tone for a lot of things for me. It really exposed me to thinking differently about kind of everything. When you are forced, you know, at a young age to learn a new language and find your way in a new town and a new transportation system, as, as I'm sure you know, you know, it's it's overwhelming and it's it, it forces you to sort of, you know, conquer some fears, but it's also really empowering. And sort of that element of cosmopolitan and sort of translation, always thinking about sort of translating things between 
between languages, either sort of metaphorically or literally kind of has underpinned the way that I've grown up. I went, you know, to high school for the most part in Austin, but but again, had a year abroad in, in Paris as an au pair and, and going to school there. That was without my family. So that was sort of another big, you know, um, I think defining kind of time in my life. And when I got home, I was applying to college and I was really kind of um, stuck, confused about what I wanted to do. I I was that person, um, as you might not be surprised to learn, that was the first chair violinist and I was in all the plays and I was a cheerleader and I was on the softball team and I was, you know, that the, the, the person that always got, you know, mostly A's. But, you know, what that actually meant for me, and I think that this is important to share in kind of my story, and hopefully this will be helpful to somebody, is... I put a lot of pressure on myself, always, always have. And that that led me to, to have a pretty significant eating disorder. I suffered from both anorexia and bulimia growing up. And what that meant was that when I was coming home from France my, my junior year of high school and applying to college, I was, as I said, I was lost. I, I was kind of in the throes of this, of this pretty you know, significant eating disorder. And I wanted to be that person that could kind of conquer everything and get through everything and put that aside. And so... I was, you know, fortunate enough to get a scholarship to Northwestern and I started there and a year in, and I loved the school. I, I just absolutely loved Northwestern University. But a year in, I realized, you know, I need to go home. I need to deal with this, this eating disorder. It's going to, it's going to ruin my life. Um, and so luckily I had, you know, very supportive parents. I, I went home, I got, you know, help. Um, and I ultimately transferred to UT Austin where, you know, again, feeling kind of lost and defeated and always having been this on-track perfectionist person, I decided to kind of major in what I considered at the time to be cop-out majors because they were just kind of easy for me. So I, I ended up ma majoring in French and opera, um, so super non-traditional, again, and, and, and frankly, nothing that I really used in my career. Although, um, again, sort of thinking about the idea of, of being creative with your skills and applying them differently, um, the, the fact that I had majored in French and, and obviously was fluent in French from my time abroad, and the fact that I was very interested in other languages, I started to learn Arabic um, right out of college, and I was actually dating a Ukrainian um, finance student uh, at, at UT Austin, and so I started to learn Russian, and um, this is how I ended up finding my way uh, accidentally into, into the IC. Uh, right out of college, I was working as the development director for a nonprofit in Austin. It was a legal aid firm because I thought that I probably wanted to do something in international law. That was really appealing to me. Um, and I one day got a phone call from a woman who identified herself as uh, a recruiter for the NSA. Um, and I had, you know, read the John Grisham novels and the John Curry novels. <laughs> you know, I, I knew about the IC sort of in that television book sense, but I had never mm -hmm. considered, you know, anything like that. Um, and it turns out that they were recruiting genuinely. They found my resume online. They saw that I had sort of language skills. They were recruiting for a language intelligence program that they were standing up. And I did about, I think it was 13 months or so of, of back and forth, you know, going through the clearance process, getting tested, flying back and forth to Fort Meade. Um, and right before I was supposed to take my take my job as a sort of junior analyst in this new program, moved to Baltimore. I had quit my job. I was, you know, back living with my parents, waiting to to move. Um, and it was November 2004. And as I mentioned, I had been dating this this Ukrainian PhD student at UT. Uh, and the Orange Revolution occurred, and NSA said. Just to be on the safe side, uh, we're going to put your clearance on hold, and we hope that you dump the boyfriend and, and reapply. Oh, my goodness. 
<laughs> this is another sort of experience, right? Like I had told everybody that this is what I was doing. It was a little bit humiliating for me, frankly. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know the IC enough to know that this was not actually going to hurt me long term. I figured I was going to be banned from ever, you know, being able to participate in this community that I was now really intrigued by. Um, and so I did the only thing that I knew to do, which was leverage my network and um, panic <laughs> and go to grad school. Um, I ultimately did dump the boyfriend because the idea that I could be a part of this community that had told me that I couldn't be a part of it at the time was uh, was fuel for me, fire. I got a master's degree in, in public affairs. I ended up meeting several university professors who drove my love for defense policy and international policy. Mm -hmm. um, and I studied under you know some greats like Bobby Ray Inman um, and, and just sort of reaffirmed my desire and my commitment to get back into this community that I'd sort of had this taste of for a moment, but didn't really know what it was. And true, true to form, you know, I had dumped the boyfriend, I got a degree and I decided that I was going to only focus on applying to, to the IC. And at the time I was advised by people that had been in the IC before that it would be easier for me to enter in as a contractor. Um, and so I went that route. Uh, I didn't really care, frankly, either way, contractor or civilian. I didn't really know about the kind of, you know, perceived divides at the time. Right. Um, so I joined as a, as a contractor and uh, started with the CIA shortly thereafter. Man, we have quite a few questions to come, but just from that introduction, we could spend an entire episode just unpacking that first question. So <laughs> first, I want to say thank you. Thank you um, for sharing your struggles with an eating disorder, because, you know, we actually have not talked about anything like that on, um, on any of our episodes in the past. And I think, you know, it's important to shed light on and important to share as a leader that we all have different struggles and we can get through them. And thank you for sharing that, because that was very personal. Um, okay. And, you know, another thing that I think could be unpacked is, is, you know, having Having a Ukrainian boyfriend and being told you can't have, you know, this job if you have the Ukrainian boyfriend. I think there are a lot of us in the IC just by nature are, you know, we're travelers and we move around and we date people of different ethnicities and countries. And I, I get a, that question a lot. You know, if I date a foreign national, am I going to be able to get a job in the IC? You know, and I think Megan had world events not been exactly what they were at that exact time. That right. probably would not have precluded me. But, you know, that also just because you brought it up, that, that was sort of the first time before I was even in this community where I was questioning the strategic nature of the decisions that were being made. Because my thought was, you're bringing me in for a language intelligence program. Don't you want me to surround myself with people that speak other languages, you know, and, right, and, right. and are from different places? Like, wouldn't that be really valuable to you? And of course, I didn't really understand a lot about the sort of counterintelligence aspects of the, of the work that I would ultimately do. But I mean, this guy was nobody that was to be worried about. And so I just, it was really confusing to me and, um, and, and prompted a sort of deeper level of curiosity about how the intelligence community worked, which I think we'll probably talk about later. Awesome. Um, so I also love that you mentioned your background in French and music. Um, this is so unique from others in the community. And I've often found that women with unique backgrounds feel they don't have the right skills or experience to provide value to our community. Can you yeah. share a few examples with with us about how you found your own unique background helpful or relevant in the IC? Absolutely. And actually, I'm really glad that you asked this question because one of the things that I share 
constantly with my mentees, with people that have sort of contacted me and are interested in this community or interested in learning about it is you can, as you know, you can literally find almost any job in the entire world in the intelligence community, right? right? I mean, you can you can be a nurse, you can be a linguist, you can be a finance person, you can be... I think that we sort of perpetuate, especially in the media, this idea that the intelligence community is analysts and collectors, and that's it. And that's so far from the truth. And Jacqueline, so... You know what's so funny is I say that... I, I literally say that every day. I think... Really? Um, I have my girlfriends here from out of town, and they're from Chicago, and yeah. they said to me on Friday night, what do you guys actually do because they, <laughs> I, I literally say people either think we're analysts, operators, or engineers, and yeah. and you're a hundred percent right. And part of the reason why we do this podcast is to shed light that there there is every job in the world in in yeah. our community. It really does a, a disservice, I think, um, th that we kind of advertise ourselves that way, you know, knowingly or unknowingly. Um, so yeah, I would say to to, the, to all the listeners. Anything that you want to do, literally anything. I mean, pipe laying, I think we need cleared people to do these things, right? So <laughs> I think there's a, the, there's a role for anyone. Um, but in terms of sort of my the way that I've leveraged, I think the things that I knew I had strengths in and translated those things into my own career in the IC was, you know, I, rec I, I sort of doubled down on what I knew my strengths were. My strengths as, as I've shared are in language, um, music, which sort of gives me this, I actually think of language and music as really related, I think, as most most people do, in terms of mapping something out or sort of decoding a puzzle. Like, to me, both of those activities are about, you know, understanding the sort of bigger picture of whatever it is, whether it's the language or the translation that you're trying to make or the song or the, you know, whatever it is, and, and decoding it and figuring out how you need to tackle it, right? And so, um, that frankly is nothing more than critical thinking and creativity. <laughs> um, and, and if we sort of think about those things in that way, and I also knew, uh, thanks to my dad and in large part, I'm a good writer. I know that. And I've, I've put a lot of time into honing that skill. And that is also something that is really lacking, I would say, <laughs> um, as I've found. Uh, and so if you're a good writer, please, please join the community. We definitely need a lot of that. But I think, you know, just understanding the strengths that I had, again, in sort of decoding things, looking at things as puzzles. Um, mm -hmm. I don't really think a lot about the IC as sort of like a code-breaking entity. And I don't really mean that. I don't mean sort of, de you know, right, right like translate. I don't mean that literally. I, I just mean looking at something, figuring out what the sort of root cause or underlying issue there is, and, and figuring out how to deconstruct a problem, right? Um, and I think that if you have to learn a language and if you have to learn how to read music or, or, or sing um, or play an instrument, you have to do those things. Uh, and so that sort of combined with this for me, this kind of unrelenting curiosity about everything and this desire to kind of learn um, anything that I can and connect, especially my, I have this real desire to connect things that don't seem connected uh, on mm -hmm. the surface, just led me into a career that, that frankly, I've had the privilege and um, also I've decided, and let me just say that word, I've decided to define. There are a lot of places, I think, in the intelligence community or in the world, frankly, which will 
kind of indicate that you have to follow a script. You have to follow this career trajectory. And what I would say is if you figure out how to play this game, you know, and leverage the strengths that you have, and you really work on understanding the humans with whom you're interacting, you can forge your own path. That's absolutely what I've done. And, and the roles that I've had, I think, reflect that. They're very much... They're very much about, you know, a, a special project and figuring out how to deconstruct a large problem and, and advise, you know, decision makers, policymakers on, on how best to solve it. So let's pull on that string a little bit more and take us through how your career unfolded once you landed in the community and and what role your mentors played in helping you navigate your path through the IC. And if you'll indulge me, Megan, I've been thinking about this career trajectory a lot, not just in the context of this podcast, but just it sort of as I am making some big transitions in my own life and kind of mapping it back and deconstructing it. I just wanted to offer, if it's okay with you first, some of the themes that I've sort of retrospectively figured out kind of unfolded and helped me map that career, which I think may be helpful to some listeners potentially. Um, and then I will get to the actual career map. Um, but really briefly, the themes that I have sort of identified recently, which I hope you will hear in the rest of my answers. The first one is why not me? And this idea kind of led me to this Shirley Chisholm quote that I love and I use all the time, which is if there's not a seat at the table, pull up a folding chair. And I so firmly believe in and subscribe to that quote and that idea. That idea. Um, and I want to just say, you know, I think a lot of times women, especially young women in the defense world, young women who've never worn a uniform, all of those things describe me, you know, maybe we don't say, why not me enough? And so I, I just want to sort of highlight that that's kind of the first theme that I've discovered has kind of driven the way that my career has unfolded. The second is about sort of a road less traveled. And, you know, I, I am often called by my bosses and by my colleagues, um, a disruptor, a breacher, an innovator. I love breacher. I have to tell you that's, that's my favorite one. <laughs> uh, <if> you're, <laughs> but, but, but I want to say that, you know, that is about certainly forging a road less traveled and forging, you know, new paths, but it is incredibly lonely as I know that you and, and others that have been a part of this podcast and AWIC know if you are leading you are out in front and there are very rarely people that are right there by your sides. I mean, they're there, but you right. often hear feel them. And so I think, you know, you'll see throughout the sort of career traje trajectory, this, why not me, this road less traveled have led me to some unbelievable opportunities, but they've also been really, really hard. And they're, they're sort of challenges and hardships that I've embraced um, but also been unbelievably defeated by in, in, in some cases. And that leads me, and I'll go through these really quickly, to the, to the rest, which are just leading with humility, empathy, and authenticity. I cannot stress this enough. Um, for me, in every job that I've had, in every role that I've played, there has been no task that I considered beneath me. I would never be the person, and I've had a lot of bosses like this, that was asking why my parking spot was not closer to the door. I mean, this is... To me, that is not what we're here for. Right. We're here to do mission-focused, really important work. Um, meeting people where they are is unbelievably, um, unbelievably important. Knowing your strengths and recognizing the strengths in others, that's sort of that empathy. And then, you know, just being a human first um, led me to understand that every human in this community, no matter who they are, no matter what their background looks like, no matter how different than yours, puts their pants on one leg at a time, just like you do. And that means, 
you can go up to them, right? You can ask them for help. You can, you can confide in them because we are at the end of the day, whether you're a three-star general or a four-star admiral or an SES or a line analyst that's just barely into the community, we're all humans first. Um, and the last one, and then I'll go into sort of my really brief career history is, is trust your gut. And I think this one's so important because I received a lot of advice along the way. You asked me about mentors and how they've shaped this career trajectory. Um, a lot of my, all of my mentors that I've had along the way, and they've ranged quite a bit, all of them have given me incredible advice and counsel and perspective. But the thing that I learned after a few years is it is all based in their reality, in their own trajectory. And so at the end of the day, just copying somebody else's path is really not sort of living that authentic, you know, life. It should be sort certainly taken into account, that perspective, especially if you're asking for it, but it shouldn't be the answer for you. I think it should, it should be one of many inputs, right? I could and, not agree more. I feel like we were cut from the same cloth. I'm not even, <laughs> um, because a lot of the things you're saying, I, I also, uh, advise when I'm mentoring and it's just taking these, you know, rock stars in the community that people see, you know, all of our mentors that are at the top of their game and, and letting, you know, um, the up and coming generation, the young professionals know that these people climb the ladder just like you they put on their pants just like you and they want to help and not getting so caught up in you know oh that's a general and that general is the end-all be-all right and and I just couldn't agree with you more no I appreciate that and I, I love that we we find our tribe right through these connections and these networks yeah I mean to your point just just recognizing that we're all humans first and trusting your guy I just think that those those can't be emphasized enough so okay now let me get to your actual question as I said, coming out of grad school, uh, I went straight into the CIA as a contractor. I lucked out. Ironically, I was choosing between two contract positions, two contract companies, and the way I chose was by trusting my gut about the leader that I was about to work for. The other jobs sounded more interesting to me, but the leader that I had in this first job, and I'm going to name him Jack Grimes because he influenced my career and it's very significant way, was such an amazing leader. And I knew that from the second that I met him, that I knew that it would be way more important for me to work in a place where I would be groomed and professionally developed and valued than it was to work on something that was like really sexy. Um, and, and I followed that throughout the rest of my career. Ironically, what I ended up working on was basically like technical collection system planning for the future which exposed me to all of these things that I think that a lot of people don't ever get sort of foundations in. So I was really fortunate in the sense that I learned about all the different collection disciplines. I learned about phenomenologies. I learned about acquisition. I learned about how all of those things um, get politicized on the Hill when it's bill time and funding time. In that very first job, in just kind of a year and a half, I learned a lot of really key foundations that would then help me connect dots, right, throughout the rest of my career. Um, after that role, Jack encouraged me to, to seek out sort of bigger and better roles, as it were, with, with kind of more insights into larger community activities and not just sort of single agency activities. And I ultimately went to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, ODNI, 
where I worked for another um, person who would become an incredible mentor to me, David Shedd, who at the time was the Deputy Director of National Intelligence for Policy Plans and Requirements. And if anybody has known me for more than five minutes, they know that policy plans and requirements are basically all I love and all I love to do. Um, so that job really, really, really shaped me. I got to learn about the entirety of the intelligence community, how the different components interact, how they should be interacting, how they don't interact. Um, and I really found my love, frankly, of, of, of policies in that, in that role. Um, when David went to the Defense Intelligence Agency as the deputy director. I, in some sense, followed him. Again, kind of this, this theme of following people that are going to invest in you and develop you and recognize your value. Um, and I took a job, not with him, obviously, but I took a job in the agency as a, as a, as a Gubby now. So I've now transitioned into a civilian career. Um, and uh, I, I took a job at DIA as a, as a mission manager in the counterterrorism shop. Um, and, uh, ironically on my third day of the job, I'm a brand new baby GS 12 and, uh, and, uh, I, secretary Gates issues his secretary of defense efficiencies initiatives. Uh, and one of them is on, you know, consolidating counterterrorism analytic functions for the department of defense. And like, how do we kind of gain efficiencies? How do we find, um, you know, things that are interdependent that we're treating kind of independently. And I was for lack. I mean, for all intents and purposes, I was kind of put in charge of a small team, um, co-leading it certainly with a couple other people, but but of, of figuring this out, of figuring out how we could look across the entirety of the department, understand all of the places that counterterrorism analysis were occurring, and figure out how to sort of streamline and gain efficiencies and, and, and make the function more effective. So that whole kind of big assessment puzzle special project led me then um, to be pulled up into the command element at DIA, where I helped stand up an integration office and led some strategic initiatives. Again, there were several people in, in, in these offices, both David Shedd, certainly, but also Mike Sasek and Paul Batchelor. You are going to notice a trend. I have not yet said a woman um, who, who encouraged me, who grew me, who believed in me, who gave me opportunities that sort of were way um, both outside my comfort zone in some cases, but also um, seemingly reserved for more senior people. Uh, but they knew that I could rise to that occasion and they, and they believed in me and they challenged me. And so I actually was able to not only propose to the deputy and the director of the agency at the time, but lead a full agency sort of strategic initiative on mapping the Defense Intelligence Agency's requirements. And this was kind of like the first time that I got to lead this this really critically important effort to me and one that people really didn't understand nor find enticing or sexy at all. But this effort drove a lot of my future work and was the precursor to, to a capability called Game Changer, which we've now built and deployed across the department, which I'll talk about a little later. But the DIA then invested in me even more, sent me to the Naval War College. I was able to stay an additional year Going back to that kind of why not me theme, I applied to be the second ever uh, civilian director fellow for the strategic studies group for the chief of naval operations. So I stayed a second year in Newport and, and got to work on talent management for the Navy of 2030 and beyond, which sort of framed everything for me 
from that point forward in, through a talent lens, thinking about how we were managing and recruiting and identifying talent and what that meant in the context of the community. And then I came back really briefly after school to, D, D, to DIA, again, helping to stand up a new kind of integration office um, uh, in the command element, this time under General Vince Stewart, who was the new DIA director. Um, and another person that has just frankly changed my life um, in many, many ways. And the way in which he has mostly changed my life in addition to watching him be incredibly strategic and thoughtful about talent placement, talent identification and talent placement in, in different parts of the community and, and outside the community, frankly, is as I was kind of getting back into the groove at DIA and leading some, some co-leading some efforts for him on, on looking at how well DIA was supporting the combatant commands, I was notified that the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, the HIPSI, was looking for somebody to do a big sort of roles and missions assessment of DIA and of the Defense Intelligence Enterprise. And I was a GS-14 at that point, a brand new GS-14. And I was given a lot of counsel by mentors who said, don't do this, don't apply for this. And if you get it, certainly don't take it because you are just making a name for yourself at DIA. You've just returned from the war college. You owe DIA because it sent you, you know, to get schooling and you shouldn't, you know, default on that as it were. Um, and most importantly, several of them advised me, uh, if you go to the Hill and you scrutinize DIA, especially publicly, uh, if you write anything or if you generate legislation, if you, you know, uh, look at DIA, you know, in anything other than a positive light, all of these people that have supported you for years and years and years are going to turn their backs on you. This was, as you might imagine, an incredibly confusing decision for me. Um, I, I saw it as an unbelievable opportunity to really be able to help the agency that I loved and that I believed in, that I had been with for seven years or whatever I'd been with it, 10, nine years, I don't know. Um, this, this agency whose requirements I had been studying meticulously for years and wanting to help sort of, you know, fix the, the challenges with the roles and responsibilities and authorities that were so convoluted, especially for DIA. And I will never forget the day that I walked into General Stewart's office and I told him about this opportunity. And he looked at me and he said, Jay, he called me Jay. He said, you are a workhorse. And I love that about you. And you work your ass off for us. And we all love that about you too. But you're not, you're not really in a position of power. I mean, you're, you're a 14, right? You're, you're a great worker. You do great things. You want a seat at the table? You got to go to the Hill. You have to go and show the, the legislative branch, show the executive branch, show DIA what you've been working on, the insights that you've gleaned. And he said, you, you can do so much more for this agency from that position than you can working for me as the director now. And that clinched it for me. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, many of the other people who had advised me not to go were right in the sense that a lot of people turned their backs on me. I really figured out who my true friends uh, and professional colleagues were because a lot of people felt very threatened by the, by the role that I had on the Hill as the DIA monitor. A lot of people felt very 
uncomfortable that somebody that knew the agency and the enterprise as well as I did because I'd been studying it through all of these different sort of roles and assessments mm-hmm. would then be effectively making a lot of recommendations about funding and winners and losers and all the things that you kind of not get to do, but but are required to do in a monitor position as a staffer. Um, and this was one of the hardest roles that I've ever had for a whole host of reasons. Um, but it did give me a seat at the table. He was absolutely right about that. Um, in, for me, the most professionally fulfilling way in that I, even though not nearly all of the recommendations that I labored over, you know, ultimately sort of, sort of saw the light of day, nor were necessarily taken, although a few were, um, I got this opportunity to really showcase what happens when you make data-driven decisions about an agency's future. Um, And that was really, really powerful. I learned more about the agency than I ever would have had I stayed working for the director because I was read into things that I probably would never have been able to be just by virtue of the fact that I was a staffer and I was monitoring the agency. Um, I, I got to learn about the legislative branch and the interactions between ledge and exec, which is really, really helpful and important. And I ultimately got to co-write some legislation um, that, that allowed us to really focus on the defense intelligence enterprise in terms of the way that ODNI and OUSDINS kind of jointly govern that enterprise and DIA in particular, which is kind of at the epicenter of that enterprise. And the legislation that I was able to write ultimately led me back to the department. I had no idea this was gonna happen. I did leave the Hill about a a year and a half in, um, mostly because it was just incredibly political and, and kind of toxic at the time and it wasn't for me. But I came back to the department. I got to work for Carrie Bingen and Joe Kernan, two unbelievable leaders and, and, and professionals who helped allow me to implement, ironically, that legislation, respond to it then from the Department of Defense's perspective. And that finally led me to the JAKE, the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, where I was able to, to help drive the stand-up and development of this capability that I alluded to earlier called Game Changer, which is kind of the culmination, the technological culmination of all this work and all these insights that I'd been sort of collecting throughout my career about the morass of policy and law and, and, and regulation that we have to kind of live in, especially in the defense intelligence world where we're beholden to both IC you know, policy and, and, and law and DOD policy and law. And you know, don't even talk about when you're talking about Title 22 and 18 and you're, interfa- you know, you know, you're interacting with state and other agencies. But this capability game changer is now deployed across the Department of Defense, which I'm very proud of and, and my team is very proud of. It's also being used in other agencies and departments and it's able to finally ingest and start making sense of all of these requirements and, 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 and policies so that we can quickly identify where there are conflicts, where there are ambiguities, and hopefully not have to spend years of assessments by hand, like I used to do in Excel spreadsheets and and Microsoft Word documents, trying to make sense of these things, trying to figure out what the DIA director's roles and responsibilities and requirements and authorities are um, in his combat support agency hat, in his IC element hat, et cetera. So that is... uh, that is where I left the government as uh, first the chief performance officer and then the acting deputy director of the JAPE. Wow. You have had a really incredible career, and I feel like you just got started. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the JAKE or the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. I don't think um, 
many of our listeners actually know what that is and why it's important and, and, you know, more specifically what you personally enjoyed most about your work there. Yeah. It's so fascinating. Um, I am not a technologist. My husband, I think, fell out of his chair laughing when I told him that I was going to go take a senior leadership position with this this component, just because he is, in fact, a technologist, and I am certainly not. Um, But that's another kind of, you know, just just aspect of this desire for me to just learn new things always and figure out how things are connected. The opportunity to go to to the Jake again was driven by relationships, by uh, both the need that I saw and relationships. I I had cultivated a relationship with General Jack Shanahan, um, who had been in charge of first Project Maven, which was kind of the first big AI project in the department, and then uh, who who stood up the, the Jake. Um, and when I was on the HIPSI, the, the House Intelligence Com- Committee, he and I kind of got to know one another. Um, and I ultimately pitched him on, on you know, developing Game Changer under the Jake umbrella. And I think he got a little bit tired of me um, from USDI talking to him about how the Jake, how as a customer of the Jake, it wasn't working to my satisfaction. And so he basically was like, all right, then come on over and help us, you know, <laughs> build it up to your satisfaction. So I did. And uh, the Jake was stood up in mid-2018. And it is, you know, a DOD-wide entity. It now reports directly to the Deputy Secretary of Defense. At the time, it had stood up under the, the Chief Information Officer, the CIO. Um, and its goal, its mission, is to basically ensure that we're bringing artificial intelligence, emerging technology um, into the department at speed and at scale. Uh, There was this widespread recognition that we were still doing a lot of the things that I've described here by hand, right? Copy pasting into Excel sheets and things that are just not going to enable us to keep pace um, with our, you know, with our adversaries or, or, or even with our allies in terms of interoperability if we don't kind of get them right. And so the, the, the Jake was stood up um, as the sort of cross-functional component at the OSD level, which is interesting um, because it's you know supposed to help coordinate across as many OSD components, the services and the combatant commands. Um, and yet when you stand something up sort of in the halls of the Pentagon, oftentimes it has a hard time kind of integrating with those more operational and tactical components. And we certainly experienced some of that, but, but the Jake is really about, you know, um, figuring out how to enable and scale um, AI in, in, in defense operations. And it was a really unique experience for me, both in terms of, of the role. I mean, as a chief performance officer, my role was really about figuring out how do we even assess our effectiveness here? How do we know if we're achieving the aims of the Jake in the, in the DOD AI strategy? And then I got this opportunity for my last eight months to serve as the acting deputy director. And I, I got to work with, you know, General Grown and the rest of the leadership team on, on figuring out what sort of what we call Jake 2.0 would look like. We had stood it up. We had instantiated it in the department. Um, it was making, you know, gains in, in certain areas. But what we were recognizing is that we were still fairly focused on kind of building things, building prototypes. And that doesn't scale. And so we really kind of took a step back and tried to reframe the the mission of the Jake in the context of what we really knew that the department needed, which was education, um, advocacy about digital literacy and, and understanding of how these technologies would actually help 
drive DOD operations, and then helping with setting up things like acquisition vehicles for, you know, quick acquisitions of these types of capabilities and bringing in non-traditional players. I can't stress that enough uh, to, to, to ensure that we were not just kind of getting the the typical defense players on, on these contracts, they are absolutely needed, but we needed kind of a mix of more. So huge focus on acquisition, huge focus on responsibly developing and deploying AI, huge focus for me in particular on, on how do we think about the, the, the way in which we're going to need to test and evaluate the AI that we're using. Because one of the really interesting things um, that, that I noticed and that, that we sort of were observing as the Jake was that a lot of people were interested in the idea of bringing AI into their operations, but they really did not know how to assess its effectiveness, how to how to determine whether you know the right models were being used, whether if you put different data in those models, they would work as effectively. Um, and there was just a lot of kind of education needed. And that's, I think, where the jig still is today, really in that kind of one foot in the, you know, desire to really scale this and, de and and deploy, you know, AI across the department and one foot in the recognition that we're still kind of bringing people along. We're still really helping people understand both the benefits and the risks associated with this te technology. So one of the many things I admire about you is your career, in your career, is that you've taken on some really hard jobs, really hard positions. What gave you the courage to take on some of those risks? And how did you uh, persevere in the face of any of the adversity I'm sure that you faced uh, once you're in those roles? You know, I think in some cases, what gave me the courage was like naivete, honestly. Um, there are many roles that I just had no idea how hard they would actually be. Um, and I think that that's a function of my husband always says um, that I have this sort of blessing and curse of being able to not only see things as they are and recognize the realities of a situation, but also to be able to see things as they could be. Um, and I love that about myself and I hate that about myself because it is very frustrating and tiring because um, a lot of people, I think, either can't or choose not to see how things could be it, with a little bit of work. Um, but in terms of courage, I would say, honestly, it is fueled by that kind of insatiable curiosity that I have to learn new things, to, 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 to be a part of new challenges, especially when somebody seems to uh, think I can't do something or underestimate me. That's my favorite. I, I mean, I, I feel like I spend most of my career saying kind of bring it on. Let, let me prove to you that I can do this. Um, so I'm sure that there's a bit of, you know, uh, kind of competitiveness there, but it's really, frankly, it's the, it's the support, uh, mechanisms and network that I have that have enabled me to take these risks. My my husband and my family are the most staunch supporters of me and my career uh, that I could ever have asked for. Um, my my friends, my my mentors and sponsors absolutely gave me the courage and pushes in many cases. Um, and honestly, and the, the community that I... <laughs> that I sort of increasingly think about and talk about in all of my interactions is, is my mentees, actually. Um, being, being able to be the person, especially a woman in this community, to be a role model for people. As I mentioned, you know, I, I, I mentioned five or six mentors throughout the course of this podcast. And I think I, I hit on one who was a woman. Um, and that is something that does not sit well with me at all. It's not that I haven't had 
female mentors I have, but most of my career I've spent watching, to be honest, women in this community step on each other and eat each other for breakfast. And it sickens me. And you and I have talked about this before. It is something that I cannot condone, cannot be a part of, have literally extricated people from my life who kind of I I observed doing that to one another because I just, I'm not going to be a part of that. I'm not going to condone it. And so the idea that I could be that, that sort of risk taker, that role model, that path forger, whatever you want to call it, you know, for my mentees, most of whom are young women, I think has been really just inspiring and a driver behind kind of every decision that I make. I think about what I would tell them to do and how, how much of a fraud I would be if I didn't take that risk myself. So you talk about um, authentic networking, which I love. I I love that because I fully believe that as well. How have you used this tool throughout your career, and how does this differ for from a more tra- traditional networking? Yeah. So I, we've talked about authenticity a couple times today. It is it is something that I think is so critically important. And I, as you say, I apply that to kind of my concept of networking. What I mean by that is I I could care less how many LinkedIn followers I have or likes I have or views. I, that's so irrelevant to me. Those are such vanity metrics. What I care about is when I need to make something happen or, or push something forward or when something needs to happen and I need to be a part of it, do I have authentic enough and real enough and current enough connections with the people that I'm going to need to, to help make that happen? Because there is, let me just say this, there is literally nothing that one person, in my opinion, can do alone in this community. You have to have a network of people, you know, around you in order to kind of make big, significant change. And that's the type of change that I always aspire to make. And so authentic networking to me is, is making sure that not only are you really creating relationships with the people with whom you're networking, if, if, if they serve both parties, right. I mean, not just relationship for relationship's sake, but, um, but making sure that you're identifying the type of people that align with your values first, the type of people that you would be willing and would want to turn to for help, for camaraderie, for collaboration. In turn, being a good contact part of their network to them as well. I I would say that I probably spend 80% of my time in life authentically networking, maintaining relationships, obviously in the context of work and in my personal interactions as well. It's not like I'm just, you know, making calls or doing LinkedIn, you know, notes, but so much, I think of the work that I do, um, is about those relationships is about those connections. And so I just think it's really important to kind of always remember that you're not, you're not connecting with somebody because they gave you a business card or because they work here or because whatever, but you should be connecting with them because you see value in the relationship. They see value in the relationship, whether it's current or potentially future. I mean, you can tell, right? Like if you're a smart human being, which I would imagine everybody that you have as a listener is, you know, when somebody is a good person, a smart person, a capable person, or just somebody that you are interested in having in your network and rather than just connecting with them and leaving it at that and then and then calling them two or three years later when you need something or want something, right. making sure those relationships are really healthy and maintained and that they're symbiotic kind of at all times. It takes a lot of work. I'm not going to lie about that. 
Um, but I think it's incredibly important. And what it has meant for me is that when I needed to, just as one example, work across the aisle in a very politically contentious environment while I was on the Hill amongst Republicans and Democrats and independents and different, you know, people with different perspectives, we were able to to pass bipartisan legislation. I mean, that was, we were able to, to pass a, 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 a bipartisan committee report. The only bipartisan committee report that got signed out during my tenure was was the DIA report. And that was because I I really care about my network and they authentically know that about me. I love it. So, you know, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier um, when you talked, uh, you talked about perfectionism. Could you tell us, uh, you know, about your own experience working through perfectionism and what would you say to any of our listeners struggling with this? I know a a lot of, uh, personally, I know a lot of friends in the community that struggle with this. Um, And so what would you say to them? Um, I would say buckle up cause it's real hard to not be a perfectionist. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's something that you're always working on. Um, especially when you've recognized it about yourself. Um, if you're a perfectionist, uh, like I am, you, it, it is both what drives you in a really positive and sort of, you know, it, helpful way. But it is also your, you are your own worst enemy in it because you are, you are way more critical of yours. I am certainly, let me speak for myself. I am way more critical of myself than anybody will ever be, could ever be. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in and of itself can be really defeating um, and, and can, can make you stuck in some cases. I think, um, I think just like any challenge, right? Recognizing it, um, trying to put those, I don't want to say voices out of your head, but almost voices out of your head. You know, when you're, when you're disparaging your own efforts, when you're getting in your way, figuring out how to identifying some tools to help combat that is really important. I'm currently working with uh, an executive coach for overachievers. That's literally how he builds himself. Um, And the reason that he got into that game is because he too was a perfectionist and it really sort of started to, tear his life apart, um, just in terms of how mean he was to himself, how hard he was on himself. And he ultimately kind of went and got coaching certificates and, and training so that he could help share tools and techniques with other people. I would say the, the most important thing, right, is, is, is just like an eating disorder or alcoholism or anything else. I mean, this is, this is something that's serious and, and people should kind of take it, I think, seriously and do whatever it is that you need to do to, ratchet it down in your head, quiet your mind a little bit, whether it's, you know, visualization or deep breathing or meditation or yoga or, you know, or working with a coach um, or just talking it out with people. I think that the other thing that we do too much of, especially as women in this community is um, sometimes try to hide our vulnerabilities um, and the things that we're kind of, you know, still working on, still a work in progress that we're, that are not perfect. Right. Um, and I think that being able to share it with somebody that you trust or respect and, and ask about their experience with it is, is really important and will probably be really beneficial. So, you know, I, I hate to switch gears. I feel like we could talk for hours, um, but, you know, for it's sad for all of us, but you recently left the D.C. area to pursue a role outside of our community. Um, tell us where you are now and do you, you know, do you have ambitions one day to come back to government work? Yeah. So I, as I mentioned, um, I, my husband, John is 
the most supportive person that I could ever have asked for uh, as a partner. And he has supported me um, day in and day out through all of these crazy jobs, through all these hundred hour work weeks for, you know, 15 years. And he had this opportunity. He himself has had a really interesting career trajectory and he had this opportunity out in Southern California um, with this, with this company. And he asked if I would be willing to, to move to Southern California so that he could kind of pursue it and be a part of the executive team. And I said, of course, hands down, absolutely. Let's go. Cause he was so excited about this. And um, that gave me this opportunity, frankly, from a timing perspective to decide that I was going to leave the federal space for a while. Uh, I, I do have ambitions to come back. I believe, um, they're pretty high. They're like, <laughs> it would be a high bar <laughs> to come back to. I'm not going to lie about that. The type of position that I aspire to hold, um, is, is currently held by Dr. Kath Hicks, uh, who in her own right is an, an unbelievable human. I don't know her well, but I'm just so impressed by what she's doing. Um, but for right now, uh, this opportunity coincided or the, 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 the leaving of DC uh-huh. coincided with my um, opportunity to take a position as the first um, vice president of innovation at Landis, which is an agricultural co-op based out of Ames, Iowa, which is actually where I'm talking to you from today. Um, and we have about 7,000 farmer owners. And my role is about helping to bring technology, modernization, new ways of thinking, and open new mar- new markets for, for, our, for our co-op. And I have no background in ag, as you guys probably know by now. Um, <laughs> but it is yet another area that I thought would be so fascinating to explore, especially, frankly, coming off of, at the time, about a year and a half, you know, living through this pandemic. And believing that we really need to define national security and global security a lot more broadly than we have. And food security and supply chain security are areas that I have become really fascinated by. And to me, this was an opportunity not only to kind of take a breath and do something different and, and, and recharge and learn something incredibly different, um, but also hopefully make some of those connections between these two industries that are not typically connected. And I've already found ways to do that, which I'm really, really excited about. Well, what I love about that is, you know, I think there's often a question, especially among mid-career folks, you know, can I, can I leave and come back? You know, can I try (laughs) something else? You know, there might be another passion or another, or, or quite frankly, you know, a situation like yours where there's an opportunity for your spouse to, to do something. And, and that might mean you having to leave, leave the community for a little bit and you are going to be proof in the pudding that you can do it. Um, and I have no doubt that you will be back. Um, just a matter of when. Um, So, you know, as you are aware, and uh, most of our listeners are definitely aware, we end each of our episodes with the same question. So in keeping with the name of our podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you had to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? All right. So I can't compete with those unbelievable women that have come before me and given you the most creative answers to this question. But I've thought a lot about this in preparation for this interview. And originally, I was going to say game changer, right? We've talked about this capability that I'm super proud of that we built throughout my career and, and have deployed and I'm proud of it. But I'm, I'm modifying a bit. So, so my code name would be game breaker. 
because that is that's what I plan to do next. I plan to to break the game, not just change it. Well, I'm going to tell you that I just got chills. Um, so I love it. <laughs> I absolutely love it. And I absolutely love you. Um, I am so thankful that you joined us here today from Ames, Iowa. Shout out to Ames, Iowa. Um, <laughs> you are just an incredible, inspirational person. And we thank you for your service. And we thank you for sharing your story with us today. Um, thank you, Jacqueline. Thank you so much, Megan, and to the whole team. At the, the podcast is amazing. I love it. And I'm truly, truly humbled to have been a part of it. Thank you. Thanks. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, code produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we would like to thank Wise Wisteria and Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Stay fierce and we'll talk next time. Thank you.